The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Trudzakian. Welcome back. Well, we have another exciting podcast. I think I say that every time. Yeah, it's they part- just keep getting better. They just, I mean, they just keep getting better. We do have a special guest who will be introduced. We'll keep that secret for now mm-hmm. uh, in a couple of minutes. But there sure is a lot to talk about. I, I just like, I don't know where to start. Yeah, I mean, well, today is March 2nd, and we're going to actually post this podcast earlier than we usually yeah. do because of all the changes. As everyone knows, the market is really getting hit by the impact of the coronavirus. The overall market's down about, if you look at the S&P 500, 10% over the last few weeks, a lot of yeah. that over last week. Yeah. And uh, oil prices are under pressure as well as the coronavirus is spreading globally, well, going global. Know, I'm a boomer, right? Well, we, yes, we know that. You know, so okay. I mean, I've seen a lot in this business, not only in my career, I've seen the, uh, you probably don't remember 1982 and the crash there, then there was a Latin American debt crisis, what was called the Asian flu, when the Asian economies tanked in the late 90s, then 9-11, Enron, financial crisis, and now we've got the coronavirus. And I haven't even mentioned things like SARS and so on. So, I mean, there's a lot of these things that happen and they induce a lot of market volatility. This one is particularly uncomfortable, I have to say. I mean, I think that there's a lot of anxiety rippling through the population because of the social media and how dynamically information or misinformation travels. So I think that's going to give us a lot of volatility. Mm-hmm. And that kind of volatility is manifesting itself, of course, in clamp down on travel and conferences. Yeah, like Sierra Week. Every year I've gone, I actually counted it up. I think I've gone 11 years in a row to that, Sierra that's Week. That's the big one in Houston. Yeah, but it? I'm not going this year. So that's a conference that was supposed to be held starting next Monday, hmm. and they've canceled it. You know, they've talked about the fact they have people from 80 different countries coming, mm-hmm. traveling from all around the world, and then being in that close proximity, and they just didn't think that was the right thing to do at this time. And I think it was a good decision. I was actually quite nervous about going. You know, it's one thing to travel and just meet with people, a few people in a meeting room. But to be in a conference with thousands of people from all around the world, that didn't sound like something I wanted to do either. So I'm glad they canceled it. No, there are thousands and thousands of people at that thing. Well, and they were going to talk about energy. So let's talk a little bit about the oil and gas markets, certainly the oil markets. WTI price has fallen from the mid-50s now to the mid-40s in the span of, what, a week? Mm -hmm. They're talking about now potentially no growth in oil consumption. You know, it's only, what, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about threats to the million barrels a day plus growth down to maybe slashing that by, in, half. in half. Yeah. So when the- and now they're talking about no growth and potential contraction. I mean, I'm, I'm of the view, I kind of get the feel it's probably going to be a contraction like when we had the financial crisis. Well, and nobody really knows because we no. just don't know how wide this is going to spread and, and how much it's going to slow down economic activity. And that is why this big meeting in Vienna, we've got OPEC meeting in Vienna on Thursday and Friday, mm-hmm. I think it's really critical because OPEC needs to show that they are in the business of supporting this market and they will offset demand destruction and they have a lot of conviction in doing that. there's a lot of that. destruction to offset. I mean, they're already curtailing, what, a couple 2. million? 2.1 million, yeah, million barrels 2. a day 1. relative to what they were before they started this whole curtailment. And now they're going to have and to do at least another million because of the growth I think collapsing. so. I think if they do less than that, the market's not going to mm. stabilize. And even if they do a big cut, I think it's still going to struggle because of the uncertainty around demand. So all eyes on Vienna this week. We need a big cut. If not, I think oil prices are, are going to struggle here for a while. So not surprisingly, the markets, the equity markets, the S&P 500, the Dow, every 
imaginable financial capital market metric is under siege. So we're going to actually talk about that. We're going to talk about that with our special guest. No spoiler alerts here. Uh, so stay tuned for that. But there are other issues here that yeah. are happening in Canada. Well, obviously in Canada, we have additional economic headwinds with these rail blockades. Now, we do understand that there was some negotiations over the weekend. With the Wet'suwet'en elders. Yeah, and that the government ministers reportedly mm-hmm. struck some kind of agreement. We don't really know that what it is, but right now there are still blockades on, yeah. on some rail lines in Canada. And so that's that extra additional problem in Canada is that we have that slowing our economy too. Although on authority of the elevator news, I caught a snippet on the way over here that the uh, they are starting to build the coastal gas pipeline. Again, construction has resumed, but uh, anyway, take that for what it is. All right. Well, with that, I think we should introduce our guest to that uh, backdrop of problems. And uh, we're really happy to introduce that we'll have Kevin Yubelin, the Chief Executive Officer at Alberta Investment Management Corporation, also known as AIMCO, join us to help think about all these issues mm-hmm. that we're talking about. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Peter. Well, Kevin, maybe the first thing is just to introduce AIMCO to our listeners and its relationship to the Alberta government and your other clients. Well, I think you already said AIMCO stands for Alberta Investment Management Corporation. We are Alberta's investment manager, if you will. We manage about $120 billion of assets around the world and across all asset classes, although it's probably a bit less than 120 after last week. And our AUM numbers will be growing to be over $150 billion in the coming months as we will be adding three new provincial clients, the Workers' Compensation Board, Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund, and Alberta Health Services. So there's a consolidation of those funds going on. And so does consolidation lead to more resilience in the markets? Or what are the benefits of that consolidation? Well, I know it's perhaps mind-boggling to people who uh, still think a billion dollars is a lot of money, and of course I certainly do, but people, for instance, who might think that $19 billion, which is the size of Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund, is certainly big enough, but there are tremendous benefits of scale as an institutional investor, and we will reap tremendous benefits of scale as we go from 120 to $150 billion, in essence, where we'll be, so that's 25% increase. And it's not just because of the scale uh, benefits, which are real, it's also because we will be able to build something stronger in terms of our investment capability set, mm-hmm. stronger than either AIMCO would have been able to do on its own, or ATRF, which has a, a small but very capable and, and, dare I say, mighty investment capability of their own, or Workers' Compensation Board, or WCB as we call them. In the big scheme of things, $150 billion is a good size, but it's by no means of the scale of some of even the largest Correct. ones. Yeah. And at some point, there are diseconomies of scale, but we're nowhere close to approaching that. And, you know, CPPIB is at $410 billion. I think that they look at increasing scale as a mixed blessing, but still a blessing. Yeah, that's our Canada pension plan. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to investments in uncertain times. Now, 2019 was a year that was many predictions that there'd be an economic slowdown, yet it didn't happen. In fact, the equity markets did very well. Dow Jones was up something like 20% over the year. But now there are new big concerns in 2020 with this coronavirus. How do you consider investing in periods like this when it is so uncertain? Like, how does the investment strategy change? Well, that's a great question because, uh, you know, when we think about uncertain times, we have to first ask ourselves, what is it exactly that we're afraid of? And 2019 was a year where 
I think a lot of the anxiety in the market was over elevated trade tensions, the fact that we were entering the 11th year of a bull market, and so things were priced to perfection. But at the end of the day, there was still economic expansion. And so the equity markets, while the breadth of that expansion kept narrowing and narrowing, the uh, the equity markets keep motoring forward. And as you say, Jackie, we saw 20% gains in, in many of the bourses. Today, we're experiencing something, I think, very, very different because we're seeing a situation play out where it's very difficult to understand how it's going to play out. You begin working with one set of assumptions, and I think the entire market, and now I'm referring, of course, to the coronavirus, mm-hmm. COVID-19. I think the whole market for several weeks was operating under one set of assumptions. I might call that a supply shock assumption. So if I were to say that in one sentence, it might be something along the lines of, we assume, we don't have the facts to know, but we assume that China will contain this virus relatively quickly. They'll be able to reopen factories in some period of time. They'll have a struggle for a bit, but then we're going to have a V-shaped recovery, mm-hmm. hopefully in the summer or even earlier. AIMCO and any other public pension institution plays the long game, you know, 10, 20, 50 years out, right? And, and so this is an event that ultimately will get resolved. How long into the future? I don't know. I suspect it's the repercussions are probably going to be around for probably a year anyway. But you're in the long game. A better question might be, given things like coronavirus and in this country, things like all the polarization and unsettling things to do with the confederation, political, geopolitical, and then, of course, on top of that is a climate risk, which we want to talk about in a minute. Like, are you rethinking risk in general over the long term? Well, I think risk is a constantly evolving process of trying to figure out how you can have a competitive edge against other investors in terms of thinking about risk, measuring risk, both on a, a looking backwards, but more importantly, on a pro forma basis. I think when we think about this coronavirus, what you saw last week was the entire market shifting from one set of assumptions to a second set of assumptions. So now I think the going in assumption is no longer that this is going to be a rather short supply shock. And as just you two were talking about during your, you know, your opening to and fro, this is going to be potentially a protracted demand shock. And you talk about conferences that are canceled. You talk about football stadiums in Italy that are empty. Let's put it this way. If before people were worried that BMW might not be able to get some parts in their supply chain, now people are worried that nobody will want to go into the showroom to look at BMWs. So that's the difference between mm-hmm. supply and and, uh, and demand shock. But you, you make a great point. We're such long-term investors that in one sense, maybe these sorts of Watusis that go on the marketplace have uh, less effect on an investor like Aimco. But one of the things that we are trying to figure out is how shall we be able to take advantage of price corrections? Mm-hmm. And so asking yourself, how protracted could this be what are the dislocations and when will be the right time to try to come in and actually buy value? Those are all about risk mitigation and risk data collection, if you will. 
So that's good in terms of the global situation, but there's also some headwinds here in Canada where we had these rail blockades. Now, I know AIMCO invests internationally, but I know you also have investments here in Western Canada. In fact, you recently made a significant investment in the Coastal Link Pipeline. This is the pipeline that's connecting gas fields in northeast BC with the West Coast to feed LNG Canada's project. Now, this project, since you purchased it, has been in the news quite a lot because there's been protests from the Wet'suwet'en elders about their opposition to the Coastal Lake Pipeline, and that's caused all these blockades. So I think we kind of break the question into two parts. First, Kevin, in terms of these blockades, how important are they in terms of their impact on the economy? And then we want to talk a little bit about the Coastal Link project uh, that you invested in. Well, I think there's a couple ways to think about the impact of things like these blockades on the Canadian economy. One is sort of a very literal short-term interpretation. You can see how it disrupts supply chain you can try like a, a microeconomist to, to calculate what negative impact that might have over the course of a few days, weeks, or months. But frankly, as a long-term institutional investor in Canada, the real impact that worries us is the uncertainty that that adds to in terms of being a long-term investor in infrastructure. So what do I mean by that? I mean, when you're uncertain as to whether infrastructure tr- transactions like this can actually be finished to to completion, then the risk premium that any investor has to place on a a transaction like that just skyrockets. And at some point, there is no risk premium that you can actually place on it because the uncertainty is so high. So when you have really high degrees of uncertainty, you just drop risk. And and perhaps that's what was happening just last week in the the equity market. Mm -hmm. So much uncertainty around the coronavirus that rather than trying to reprice it, you just have to drop the risk. So This uh, coastal gas pipeline situation is a really interesting one for AIMCO because we analyzed this every which way we could, talk about, you know, risk management, uh, risk assessment. We honestly believed that this was going to be one transaction where everyone embraced what we were trying to do. Why? Because bringing liquid gas to the West Coast is an absolute step towards decommissioning coal-fired power generation across Asia, and we know that that is a a massively important step towards decarbonizing that part of the world. And a 20 First Nations coalition along the entire path of that gas pipeline had signed on in strong support, uh, economic support. What we underestimated was the 17 kilometers and the hereditary Wet'suwet'en leaders. Mm -hmm. And Instead of getting a a pat on the back, we've gotten quite a slap on the face, and Mm -hmm. we're learning a lot from it. So let's think about this in a broader context. I think it's a truism to say that investing in things like pipeline infrastructure going forward are going to require a higher risk premium, right? I mean, whether it's you or your peers in the institutional investment community, in other words, you need a higher return. The bar is higher for you to even consider investing in some of these things. Would, Would you say that's true? Absolutely. So let's take the extension to that and say, is that also true now for other resource-based investing, say, in in mining, forestry, all sorts of resource-based things that Canada really has been built on that is also seeing sort of these same sorts of pressures that the oil and gas industry is seeing? I think it's unquestionable. there, There may be other risk factors that we can hold our hand over our heart and say things have gotten better. So, you know, these are uh, areas where 
inroads in the quality of data or the tools or the modeling that we can have makes our ability to probability adjust our returns better. Mm -hmm. But these kinds of issues of whether or not there will be enough support at the governmental or regulatory level or with the people of Canada to support these projects through to completion, I think the uncertainty has only risen. I think the supply-demand economics of, of oil and gas itself, uh, you can tell me, YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, this is your bread and butter, uh, whether that, that's gotten easier or harder in the last uh, year or two. And when you have these uncertainties, and, and some of these uncertainties are specific to Canada or Alberta, including the pricing of carbon in the near term compared to the rest of the world, then the willingness of investors to go there and to even try to place a probability-weighted return mm-hmm. on, on that yeah, you it's, know, really gets difficult. It is difficult. And I, I guess I'm sort of somewhat to repeat, I'm, you know, what I'm concerned about is that, okay, we know the travails of the oil and gas industry and what they've undergone over the last several years, and it's getting more and more difficult. And as you said, the risk premium is going higher and higher. But it strikes me that this is now an infection, if you pardon the, the related pun, that's spreading to other resource-based and even beyond resource-based investments, large infrastructure in Canada. That is as far a story that's far beyond just oil and gas now. I would never disagree with you, Peter. Yeah, and I would even say like <laughs> I would even say like think about a company like the railways, right? Like mm-hmm. they have quarterly guidance that they give. Going forward, are they not investors not going to have more of a risk premium associated with them being oh, able to operate? Is. So it affects probably their long term sure. stock value. Everything. Yeah. I mean, as I said, this is like an infection that's spreading. I mean, there was a conference. I think I just caught the headline in Toronto where the mining conference was had protesters anti resource process. So it's 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 spreading, and that's mm-hmm. of concern. So I know Kevin. I think you had protesters outside of the IMCO office over the coastal link. Were you surprised by the level of opposition that you saw protests? across the country and even in Edmonton? We were very surprised. And like I said, we had done a tremendous amount of diligence. We had spoken either directly or through TC Energy, which was the seller of our stake in Coastal Gasoline, with several of the elected leaders of the Indigenous tribes along that entire length of pipe. Uh, We really were gobsmacked, that's a technical term, with the response. And, you know, we're still trying to calculate what our takeaway lessons are. We had protesters both in our Toronto office as well as uh, here in Edmonton. I thought a little bit about this. You know, if you think about in France, right, they had those yellow vest protests. They started out with the gasoline price going Mm -hmm. up due to a carbon tax. But then there were so many other issues that were brought to the forefront by those protesters. And I feel like some of this opposition is to do with climate change. And I don't know if the protesters had signs around that. But I think part of this is climate change. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about climate change in terms of how the investment community looks at it. Yeah, well, the yellow vest is a perfect example. I don't think many people connect the dots, but the yellow vest protest is really a protest against how that government was planning to attach a price on carbon, plain and simple. And when we think about how climate change is influencing our investment strategy, there's a few things that come immediately to mind. And and one of them is just that. It is that on a global basis, society has come to the decision that carbon emissions shouldn't be free and that a price tag should be placed on them. But how we're going to place a price tag and who's going to pay that price is anything but settled. And as investors, 
if we know that there's a cost floating out there ephemerally that we, A, don't know the value of the cost or risk, you can use those terms interchangeably, or who's going to pay for them, or how once those costs are calculated and somebody's paying for them, it might impact flows of Mm -hmm. capital or consumer flow, then once again, it raises the premium that's needed. So when we think about very simple things like carbon footprint disclosure, the TCFD recommendations and other things, one thing we think of this as is just simply a very small first step towards trying to capture the data necessary for us to quantify that cost. So we've been doing our carbon disclosure of our portfolio now for, I think, three years running. For two years now, we've been doing it two different ways, including the uh, weighted average capital intensity method or wacky method that is the uh, TCFD recommended policy. You know, the other ways that this is influencing our investment strategy is, first, we have to ask ourselves across every single asset class, including the builder of widgets, let's just say, how is climate change going to impact that business? Are widget demand going to go up, down, or sideways? Will costs go up, down, or sideways? Will consumer demand or regulatory stress go up, down, or sideways? So we're having to look at everything that we invest in across every asset class, frankly, through that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is another key thing um, that, okay, we know that the oil and gas industry, again, has been under a lot of pressure and has actually been working on trying to measure and report its emissions over the course of the last, actually, probably 10 years, certainly acutely over the last three to five. But now we're starting to see the heat get ratcheted up on other industries, steel, aluminum, widgets, as you said, cement, railroads. And the way I see it, I mean, from an investor's perspective like yours, is that the carbon tax is actually on the cost of capital. In other words, it's on, it, it raises the risk premium of investing in any of these things. I mean, if, if it gets ratcheted up too high and the scrutiny is too high across all these different industries in our country, then you're not going to invest in anything. Well, I mean, I, speaking as CEO of AIMCO, we will invest in something, but it, it becomes harder and harder for us to know what kind of a risk-based return we ought to be expecting. And you're absolutely right, Peter, in saying that this is not an oil and gas problem. This is across every single sector. It's across every single asset class. Well, I think the key thing is that there's better reporting. You know, famous Canadian Mark Carney has recently joined the UN with the goal of moving more investment to support a low carbon scenario and more reporting and that you can differentiate some companies that mm-hmm. have less risk, which, Kevin, it sounds like you're saying that that's relatively hard well, to do today. We're just at the start of this well, better understanding. Well, here's what I would say that might be support for Mark Carney's position. When we're talking to management teams in companies in any industry, we're looking for management teams that have a progressive, enlightened attitude towards how to manage their business in the next decade or 20 years. And so we want to see management teams that are not burying their heads in the sand over the fact that climate change is going to change the dynamics of their business and everything else, but rather have very clear-cut strategies and plans for how they think that's going to play out. And we actually do support the notion that calculating your carbon footprint, as frankly, as ridiculously imperfect as those calculations are right now, is one necessary step towards doing it. So we support the TCFD disclosure. 
And we really do think that enlightened long-term management teams that are thinking proactively about the impacts of climate change will outperform management teams that still think that this is going to go away in a year or two. Yeah, I think that's that's generally true. Some of the pension funds, some of the institutional investors, such as uh, yours, have chosen to go even further. They've announced full divestment of fossil fuels, very aggressive overall portfolio reduction of carbon intensities of all the businesses that they invest in. Where are you at on that? Yeah, well, first off, some of our peers that have announced the target reductions in their, their carbon footprint, you know, between you and me, I think that all of the industries that we're investing in are doing such phenomenal work in reducing the carbon footprint, not least of which right here in Alberta. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've listened to some of your other podcasts where you've talked about the tremendous effort and commitment that the oil patch here in Alberta has towards eventually being net carbon zero. But my point here is that all of, of, of us institutional investors will probably experience a 25 to 30% reduction in the carbon footprint of our portfolios without us having to make any mm-hmm. active portfolio decisions because that's what's going to happen to all those underlying holdings. They're, they're going to have a reduced carbon footprint. Yeah. So some of this is, is really good PR, I might, I might suggest. You know, frankly, we have a single mandate, which is to maximize net investment returns, net of both cost and on a risk-adjusted basis. So we're very hesitant to, separate from that, make a single carbon footprint commitment, as I inferred. The longer your time horizon, I think that to maximize risk-adjusted returns over a long time horizon is tantamount to being dedicated to lowering the carbon footprint of your portfolio and is to find uh, management teams that are committed to doing that. And that's what, no matter what sector they're in, whether they're in oil no, and gas or other industries. Absolutely, industry. no matter what sector they're in. I mean, we find in our real estate portfolio some of the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, if you have a multi-use or uh, office building anywhere in the world that hasn't been refitted mm-hmm. to be uh, more efficient in the, really the last two or three years, then you can increase efficiency and reduce carbon by between 10 and 30% with a very high payback because the cost of retrofitting and, mm-hmm. and making these buildings more efficient is, is actually very low. So that's carbon emissions. What about on the SNG, you know, it's ESG, environment, social, and governance? Well, AIMCO has been an absolute leader across the, the E, the S, and the G, and you're dead on that in the last uh, year or two or three the environmental and specifically the issue of global warming has sort of pushed these other important factors uh, to the side. When we think about our approach to uh, responsible investing broadly, which includes environmental, social, and governance, you know, one of the guiding principles that we follow is what we call voice over exit. What does that mean? It means that as often as we can, we prefer to engage with the, the investee companies and the investee management towards positive change, as opposed to uh, voting by hitting the exit door. And we, we honestly believe that we can effectuate uh, positive change in any one of those areas, environmental, social, or governance, and that if we're right, that those improvements will also correlate with better investment returns, again, over a very long time horizon. So what you're saying so, is if, if, you, if, if you like a company and you've held it for a long time, but you feel they're a little bit deficient on any of these metrics, say, take uh, diversity of employees, 
you'll sit down with them first before saying, uh, you know, phoning the trading desk and saying, get rid of this stock. That's right. What I'm also saying is when you voice your displeasure over any of these things, like uh, not enough women at the executive suite or not enough women on the board or mistreatment uh, of your supply chain, any of these SRG issues, and you voice your displeasure by selling your stock, you've used your one chance to voice your displeasure once, and, mm-hmm. then, and it's over. Whereas active engagement to try to convince management that they should be thinking about these things differently and potentially making changes allows you to have your voice and, uh, yeah. over and over. And it also allows you, if you believe that these changes do correlate with better long-term performance, to benefit from right. um, from those changes as right. well. Right. So we see that over and over. Of course, there are certain situations where we do the calculus and we think for whatever reason, either because it's a small holding or because there's real, uh, we think, negative reputational risk against AIMCO, which we hold our reputation you know, mm-hmm. very, very uh, carefully, that we may sell as opposed to engage but 99 times out of 100, it's, it's voice yeah. over. So as, as, a, as a shareholder, you're using positive influence for positive outcomes, not only for the pensioners in your portfolio, the Albertans, but also for social good. Mm-hmm. And that's a great argument against divestment because, you know, these companies will maybe not reduce their emissions if the investors don't pressure them. Well, this has been a great conversation, Kevin. Perfect timing with all the changes that are going on right now. And we definitely appreciated your perspectives, yeah. and I'm sure our listeners will, too, to consider how to think about these uncertain times. So thank you for joining our yeah, podcast. thank you. It's a great honor. It's a, it's a lot of fun chatting with both of you guys. All right. Well, thank you. And thank you, listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.